1: Welcome to another episode of Inside the Banjaverse. I am your host, Enda Scal. On this episode, I talk to singer-songwriter Emma Langford from Limerick in Ireland. Emma is endlessly eloquent and elegant, a remarkable singer-songwriter, and a wonderful social advocate as well. I do hope that you enjoy this interview with Emma Langford.
2: And the golden sunsets, like no other, they say, on the winding way down to Kells Bay, where sorrows met with smiling eyes, and a great black cloak brushed with stars for a sky, and the old trees leaning there to whisper a tale, on the winding way down to Kells Bay. There's a song in the heart of the people you meet on the winding way down to Kells Bay. Yes, a joke to be shared and a drink to be drank on the winding way down to Kells Bay. And the green Kerry hills overlooking the sea, and the fuchsias are blooming so brightly and sweetly. And the ocean could carry our worries away On the winding way down to Kells
1: Bay uh, So how are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I'm just um, home from the gym. And you know the rule, if someone goes to the gym, they have to tell you. So I'm just <laughs> home from the gym. Um, I'm doing weight training for the past couple of years. Um, and we... I hit a PB of, I think a deadlifted hundred kg there a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, and now we're doing, um, what's it called? Back offs? Loads, somethings? I don't know. There's some <laughs> thing you do in the weeks following, like a big weight like that, where you just, like, a deload, a few weeks deload, where you would just kind of do low weights for lots of reps uh, so your body doesn't freak out about you doing too much weight all the time.
1: You're obviously um, doing this with a trainer then.
0: Yes yeah yeah Um, it's a silly little thing but like when I started my career one of my goals had always been to because I was always so jealous of like you know famous people always like looking in top shape and like being on top of things so all I ever wanted was to have a personal trainer and a nutritionist and I worked with a nutrition coach for a few months last year which really really helped and now I'm kind of on the right track and I know how to fuel myself and look after myself and not feel like rubbish all the time and then Rob my trainer is someone I've been working with for a couple of years because I was actually experiencing like really chronic back pain to the point that I was stuck in bed for days at a time there a couple of years ago and all the advice I got was to do weight training and I thought it sounded ridiculous because I was like my back is constantly sore how can I possibly lift heavy things but just find the right person And take it at your pace and once they understand what your priorities are and stuff it kind of really works so now I have achieved that silly little goal I had for so long of just having a PT and having a nutrition coach now I I don't work with Tasha at the moment on nutrition because I hit a point where I was like I'm becoming obsessed with this and that's not what I want I don't want to be you know my goal was never weight loss or anything and we had kind of started working toward that and I was like you know what I need to step back now for a while and not do this, and she was great about it, so so that's that's me. How are you?
1: I'm fine. I could do it going to the gym. I do weight training a lot, uh, and I haven't been since uh, before Christmas, just because it's the time of year. absolutely. It's yeah. my excuse, and I'm sticking to it anyway.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's something most musicians should do a bit of because of the amount of kind of held positions we have on stage and the sitting in cars and all like a lot of the stuff we do day to day with touring and playing and setting up and all this is actually quite strenuous in your body if your muscles are not prepared for it so it's something that I think you know whether you have chronic back pain or whatever your kind of you know aesthetic goals might be weight training is so good for you
1: yeah yeah I love it for the 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 release and the head it's so good for the head going it really is I used to listen to Tony Robbins quite a bit Oh yeah. But um, take them or leave them. But he used to say, you know, if you're if you're in if you're in a funk, mm. just go and lift something heavy, and Absolutely. you'll feel you'll feel better afterwards. And I always found that worked. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like therapy. Like twice a week, I go into this room, and all I have to think about is lifting this thing up and putting it back down. And now, granted, myself and my trainer were both kind of nerds, so we wind up having all kinds of mad meandering chats. But you know, the goal of these hours is not to impress anyone or do anything other than literally pick this thing up and put it back down or support your own body weight hanging from this thing or you know it's it's very nice to have this real streamlined focus for two hours of the week it's as good as therapy like and also therapy would also
1: be good so <laughs> do you yeah. do uh are you into the cold water stuff
0: i am i'm really bad at that's a that's the wrong mentality but i am bad at it like i'm very (laughs) I hate being cold um and I'm not I don't have the equipment for it at the moment so like I need to get proper like long sleeve togs thing and the proper hat and the boots and everything and then I think I will be more willing to go for it it's just it gets into my bones and then I really struggle to warm up after it and I'm always a little bit afraid that it'll make me sick and then that affects up my week for work as well so yeah I love it anyway I think it's great um Yeah. I, I did it, I did
1: I think it. I did it once. <laughs>
0: really? You
2: can't <laughs> handle. Complete it
1: completely was with the cold. But like <laughs> that I got so cold that like mm. 4 hours later I I was still cold and you know they talk about the the buzz of when you warm up and I was like when is this going to kick in cuz I'm just <laughs> terrified that I'm never going to be warm again.
0: Yeah, when does that part happen? Um yeah, it was yeah, too much was, for me. It it's every time I do it that is kind of my experience that it takes a while to warm up so I've now I uh, got a dry robe, I'm um, a dry robe person, which um, any listeners uh, to, your, to your podcast or viewers of your podcast who have an issue with dry robe people, I'm sorry, but it's really cozy. Um, if you have an issue
1: with dry robe people, you want to go and get an issue for yourself. I
0: know, I know. <laughs> I had this whole kind of chat on Twitter there a while back. I like, I really wanted one. And I was like, OK, can someone please explain to me what the issue is? And I think the issue at the time was there was this like strata of people who had them they weren't actually really into the cold water swimming. They just liked showing off that they could afford to buy a dry rope because they're so expensive as well. Like they're they're actually very expensive. Um, so there were these. There was apparently this like strata of people who would just like hang out by the sea in their dry ropes with their like iced mocha latte things or whatever. And it was like a, a whole like.
1: But that thing. sounds totally made up by somebody who went look at them. They don't even swim. Surely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like because going to be. I mean, I'm trying to think of the amount of people that would actually put on a dry robe with no intention of ever swimming just so that they could say that they could afford a dry robe, it seems a little bit.
0: It seems like a stretch, all right, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But um, I guess, I mean, you know, you've got the kind of the people who hang out in an active way as well and carry a yoga mat around just to kind of be seen carrying a yoga mat around. You know, there's, there's, going, there's always going to be some. Anyway, um, there is some really cool research into the impact of cold water swimming. I think it's really you know, it's really, really cool because I've seen the effects of it. I have friends who are on antidepressants and who swear by the serotonin rush of cold water swimming versus what they'll get out of, you know, the dopamine hit of getting into cold water and that full body experience. They come away and there, there have there have been, you know, actual quantitative scientific studies into this as well, looking at how someone's serotonin spikes after a cold water swim versus the top dose of antidepressants and so that it's i i re, would really love to be better at it for that reason of having something weekly that i do that has that kind of impact you know yeah.
1: Oh, me too. I I watch all the YouTube videos of Andrew Huberman and and all of the (laughs) science behind it. I'm like, yeah, it sounds awesome. And then go down to Silver (laughs) Strand. I'm like, (laughs) "Mm, it's very cold.
0: You know, I actually get the exact same rush from just watching you guys. So I'll just
1: leave (laughs) you to it. I feel cold enough watching (laughs) it. All right, let's talk some music.
0: Sure.
1: So you're from Limerick. Mm -hmm. Have you, you, yeah, yeah, has it been, right? So I was, 6 years old and got handed a tin whistle when I went to national mm. school and and the rest is history as they say what what is your what's your starting point
0: I was a stage school kid um so I was doing cartwheels and cat tumbles and all that kind of stuff across the stage in clown costumes and wigs um I got a handful of solo singing roles in different kind of stage school shows like variety shows but it was always just like a hobby um, also I was, I was quite hyperactive as a child, you know, um, now as an adult, I've learned that it's entirely likely I have ADHD. Um, but, uh, at the time as a kid, I was just a chatterbox and a handful. And so my mom put me into every stage school, speech and drama, choirs, everything that she could find because I was never happy. And then I'd get home and we still performing and I would still be putting on costumes and stuff. Um, So that was kind of my start. It wasn't that I was, you know, buzzing to play an instrument or anything. I was writing poetry. I was always writing stories and writing poetry and stuff. And then when I hit my teens, I discovered music uh, in a slightly more meaningful way, I suppose, as opposed to a way to just get the energy out of me. Um, But it was kind of a tricky path because when I was about 12, I started to develop vocal nodules. So I lost my voice for a long time and I wasn't allowed to sing in every choir. I had to mime. I dropped out of stage school. I just like kind of gave up on performing in music.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to picture going to choir and miming.
0: Yeah, I know. I had some very, very patient uh, choral directors. So two women in Limerick who anyone from Limerick will probably know if they work in music at all are more uh, Kiri Scanlon and uh, Orla Colgan and Orla Colgan was my choral director in school and Maura was the Limerick Youth Choir director. Two outstanding women who were, they just knew how much I wanted to spend time with other singers and kids my age. And, you know, I guess they could see in me the kind of the the urge to sing. But they, they, when I explained to them what was happening, they were so accommodating and they allowed me to kind of... Um, sing the bare minimum or just mime in parts. And uh, I remember at one point then in the school choir, as my voice was kind of coming back, I had like a really good range because I had gone through all of this vocal therapy and vocal retraining with Moira. So then I got back to the school choir and started singing again. And my range was like insane from this vast amount of vocal rest and retraining, which was really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I was I was about, I guess, 17 thereabouts when I I was you know throughout school I was listening to Avril Lavigne and Evanescence and uh, all of these real kind of punk emo bands um, anything with a bit of drama to it I guess was always what drew me in um, so all that punk emo stuff always had that and I loved it and it allowed me to be angsty as well so that was great and then uh, yeah toward the end of school I started writing my own music and it kind of went from there. My mom handed me my first guitar and I wouldn't, I refused to play it. Like I wouldn't touch it. It was because she played guitar when she was growing up. And I was like, I'm, no, it's not cool because my mom does it. Um, and then eventually I think it was junior cert. Um, I wasn't very, like I was really, I was a really clever kid, but I the school system didn't suit me. I won't say I wasn't academic. I could have easily been academic, but the school system in Ireland just did not suit me at all couldn't ask enough questions in class I wasn't allowed to engage the way I wanted to or learn how I wanted to so junior cert rolled around and I was expected to sit down and study stuff I didn't care about for hours at a time and all of a sudden miraculously I had an interest in the guitar so I went back to my mom and I knew she would be all about this because it was her thing so I was like mom I just really want to like learn a few chords on the guitar I want to learn to play this song this song and she was just thrilled until she twigged exactly what I was doing and at that point it was too late so that was kind of I guess the beginning of the end for me in a way.
1: So do you feel you missed out in any sense academically? Would would a different road have opened up had you, you know, been able to pursue different subjects in a different way?
0: Because yeah, I'm quite very familiar
1: with what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So I I recently had um the reason I I'm, I know that ADHD is a likelihood for me is uh, I recently got an autism diagnosis and I don't like to call it a diagnosis. It feels very reductive and negative, an identification, and um, it opened up a lot of things for me and it reframed a lot of my experiences growing up. So I really loved in school. I loved science. Like growing up, I loved science. I loved history. I really, really loved understanding how the world worked. And it's possibly part of why I was drawn to writing songs as well Is because when I'm writing, it's my processing kind of it's it's how I see the world. And thankfully, it's through a creative lens. Um, I'd have loved to have been able and to have been enabled to really pursue like physics or anything scientific in school. But you know nobody has the time for the one kid who has a million questions um or who doesn't feel like the book communicated something clearly enough or who isn't willing to just regurgitate what's in the book um and also i was learning through irish so i was in an all irish speaking school and there was that additional layer of complication for the teachers for us um in history we would sit there in class all day every day just transcribing our book into a copybook in Irish the teacher would have it all translated and we just uh, that was our we never had conversations or discussions in juniors earth about you know what actually happened or what was interesting about it it was just right let's regurgitate this now um so yeah I think had things been different in the way they were taught I might have wound up in a different area or a different path um I'm slow to regret that because I am where I am because of it uh but I always feel bad for that kid that felt useless because of the way things were.
2: Hmm.
1: that's fascinating, and I have some experience of that as well. Not the not the Irish, but uh, yeah, it's a funny old school system that it, it very much fits the middle sixty percent, and yeah. then the, the outliers on on both ends. It's
2: Absolutely, it's kind of like,
1: can you just kind of squeeze into the middle and be quiet and don't disrupt too much
0: (laughs) oh for sure and then even at that that 60% relies so heavily on people's parents having money for grinds and tutorials and all that supplementary work that you know not everyone has so that's you know in in most schools in Ireland yeah you'll have 60% that are thriving but there's so many schools out there that don't have that kind of support or you know parents don't have that kind of financial backing to be able to do that so it's loads of kids falling through the cracks but I guess you know, for any of those, any parents that are struggling with that or who have kids that are struggling with that, just to know that there are like, I'd have loved to have known in school that there were alternative ways. Now, inherently, I believed this. Inherently, I believed the CAO was not the be all end all. The Leaving Cert was not the be all end all. I quite enjoyed my Leaving Cert year because I had come to a point of resignation (laughs) of like, this is not going to suit me. This is not, I I will, I could make myself miserable studying every single hour of every single day to get the results I supposedly need in this exam and wind up in on some course that I don't really care about. So my CAO, I put down some ridiculous stuff. My top choice was the BA voice and dance in UL. And then under that, I put like midwifery or something, you know, it was just like a string of like random things that I had zero interest in. And I was like, oh, they, they need me to fill this out. So I'll just fill it out. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was with a very clear mind that, If I don't get this course, I'll find another way to do something I want to do. I'm not going to accept any of these other courses. So, you know, there's the school system is rubbish and it should really be about education and about making education exciting. Um, I think it's something maybe you had this growing up as well. Whenever I would find something boring or, found you know, learning about something not very engaging. The default response was like well life isn't meant to be exciting life isn't meant to be fun that was always the response you know and I remember being really confused by that because why not like why can't things be made exciting and fun if that's what someone needs to engage and connect and participate Mm. um you know obviously yeah agreed not everything is always going to be exciting and fun but why not find it where you can so yeah yeah, you'd always wonder kind of what would have happened otherwise. But life is what it
1: is. What was your poetry like when you were when you were a kid? Oh, what, what was it about? Um, <laughs> was it all unicorns and rainbows?
0: No, God, no. I had a really macabre, dark sense of humor. I was very into Terry Pratchett and Roald Dahl and Quentin Blake and who's an illustrator. But his illustrations kind of drew me in. Um, so <laughs> there was a competition at Easton in, in Limerick. Uh, to win like a big collection of Roald Dahl books. Uh, It was a poetry competition and I entered it in the style of Roald Dahl. So I wrote this really uh, weird, long poem about basically um, a little girl needing to go to the toilet, but there's a monster in the toilet and so she can't go in there and it turns out that the monster was just her sister wearing a face mask and cucumbers on her eyes and a towel on her head kind of thing but she gets she gets spooked by it and it's this whole thing this big long saga about that kind of thing um so it was mostly that (laughs) that kind of stuff um a lot of yeah i had quite a kind of a gruesome dark sense of humor as a kid so um very rarely unicorns and ponies and things as i got a little bit older i would have tried to kind of copy the pop sort of style of songwriting and written sort of songs about going out dancing and stuff when I when I was like 10 you know and had no idea what any of it meant Um, because I had an older sister who would have been she had a band all friends and they would have come to the house and like practice their songs together and stuff so I've been learning from them and then Spice Girls would have been kind of around and I'm just sort of absorbing all of that but yeah no my my childhood poetry was yeah, not not what you'd expect from
1: a, a kid. So what, was it a musical or creative house then? You said your mom played guitar.
0: Yeah, my parents are both. So they both studied science in college. They both studied science in uh, UCC. That's where they met. And uh, but they were they're both artists. My dad's a cartoonist and my mom would be more into kind of like landscapes and portraits and stuff. So they own a family business where they do like murals and window painting and Santa's cabins and kids bedrooms, that kind of thing. So that was always in the house. Then they always had like all kinds of music playing, um, like a random mix of ABBA and Elvis and Enya and that kind of thing. Um, And then musical theater stuff. And my older sister is an actress. Uh, So it was a creative house. Definitely. Like random eclectic. I like to say I grew up with soft people in a world full of hard edges. Like we're all, we all mind each other and we're all very close. Um, So it was funny when I did wind up exploring autism because a lot of things resonated and it made sense when those things did resonate about why I didn't pick up on them sooner because there was never a feeling of being odd at home. We were all equally eccentric and creative and soft and kind of just a little bit left of center so yeah
1: that's a that's a beautiful turn of phrase soft people in a world of hard edges that'd be a good album title you can have it's your phrase (laughs) (laughs) so uh college then did you did you do the ul course that you applied for
0: in the end i did actually after school i took a year out and I went away working as one of those people you meet on the street who stop you and ask you to raise funds for charity. One of those people. Um, what are they call called? Triggers. Yeah, like charity yeah. muggers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was one of those for about six months after school. Um, and I thought I was changing the world. You know, I really thought I was doing the best thing possible. Um, But it was, it was a real learning experience, actually. And it taught me a lot ahead of, like, going into a career in music. It taught me a lot about people, about humanity. Um, about how cruel people can be when you know you haven't when you haven't provoked empathy in them so you know you try and stop someone in Galway and they might be a perfectly nice person but they see you as a scourge um the same way some people see panhandlers and people on the street begging or whatever you know there's a real disdain toward anyone asking for something on the street so um Yeah, I'd get a lot of really nasty remarks about my appearance and about my behavior and about what I was doing from people who didn't know me um, all over the country. So I worked in different cities every two weeks and I was a team leader and I had a, you know, every few weeks a new person would come and join and I'd have to train them up and we'd go out in the street from seven o'clock in the morning until maybe 11 o'clock at night with a couple of breaks here and there. Um, It was wild. It was crazy uh we were at one point one of my managers advised us to go into the shop on shop street can't remember what's called McCambridge, maybe it's called i think um and they're like go in there now get a double espresso put three sugars into it throw that back and then get out in the street and i was like 18 19 and uh so yeah you go out in the street buzzed up on caffeine and sugar Uh trying to stop people, trying to tell them about how awful the world was. And all of this was like, if you don't sign up 10 people today, you're not getting off the street. You're just you're staying there until until you get those 10 people to sign up. And people wind up frantic because you're like, I really I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I need to go. So yeah, it was it was a crazy time. Um, so I had six months of that, and then I moved to Galway for a while and worked in uh, retail and in hospitality and then eventually I in the summer of that year a few of my friends who I'd met when I was still in school they were all in the drama society in UL and they were doing a drama course over the summer and I came back to Limerick and wound up hanging out with them and realized how much I missed having a gang of friends that weren't like workmates and that we're all passionate about something and we're creative and um, so I decided I, I'd start the course then so I re-applied to go to UL and I started in the following September so that was yeah that was the start of four years of like, more madness but it was good it was really good.
1: Mm, that sounds like um, anything would have been uh, enjoyable and easy after 12 hours in the streets of Galway trying to
0: yeah it was kind of strange going into a group of people who were just fresh out of school and enthusiastic about humanity and life and stuff and I'm coming in slightly world weary and haggard um,
1: at, at 18. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm done with the world it's awful pretty
0: much pretty much it was yeah I was pre- I was fairly done with um, teamwork <laughs> it probably wasn't the best way to start my college career but that was where I was at
1: probably wasn't a great example of what teamwork could be like either no, <laughs> it sounds no i sounds mean, highly irresponsible
0: it, it was for sure thankfully i wasn't the kind of manager my manager was you know i was i tried my best to make sure everyone was safe and happy and had eaten properly before going out in the street and everything but my god it was it was brutal you know and then you have your kind of big boss coming down to to, to see you every now and then and to see how things are going and they're like why aren't you like pushing them a bit more why aren't you getting them to do this that and the other and i'm like because that is awful is why i'm not doing
1: that and it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because i think a lot of the public are aware that that is the uh, the system with 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 sugars and oh
2: yeah you're trying
1: to get people to sign up so you can get off the street and people are like well i'm not supporting that nonsense yeah yeah the whole thing goes round and round yeah
0: ah yeah jesus yeah whenever i see them now i mean you know i always kind of give them a sympathetic smile or whatever but i'm like i'm sorry i can't support
1: the company you're working
0: for like i can't do it
1: yeah I'm sure you probably passed me a few times on the street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope I was nice. Um, oh so tell me about UL because that sounds like an absolute cocoon compared to your 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 time working.
0: Yeah, it was a it was a totally different world. It was um, so I had spent some time in UL when I was in sixth year. My older sister was the head of drama sock, and at one point they needed a bit part in a play, someone to fill it, and I was roped in, and I just kind of fell in love with the whole scene and realize that people who are in college I get on with them a lot better than people who are in school um because well especially if you're in a club or society because they're all people with shared interests and probably similar types of personalities so yeah I kind of latched on to them a little bit when I was still in school and then when I came back uh I became the president of the drama society and the production officer and stuff so I had that kind of lovely outlet which is great and then the course itself I mean Yeah, it was tricky. It was it was a hard course to do because it was very contemporary at the time. It had a real focus on sort of um, like we would do Morton Feldman and John Cage and all this kind of stuff that a lot of my classmates did not join a performing arts course to do. Um, And then it was voice and dance. So even though some of us went in as singers or some of us went in as dancers, uh, we were still encouraged to do both. In first year, so I wound up having to do like ballet at the age of like 19, 20, which is very difficult. Like your your bones are already formed, you know, you're not bending that way anymore, really, at that age. So that was that was difficult. But um
1: are there are there photos? <clears throat> I don't think <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> really <hope
0: not. laughs> Like there are videos of our performances because we had to do like an end of year performance of everything. Um, so there probably is like some dodgy photos or videos somewhere of me trying to do something <laughs> hopefully they are hidden in the recesses of ul archives
1: did you feel did you feel a benefit from being pushed to do something creative and artistic that was uncomfortable
0: yeah it was good you know i think a lot of um, singers struggle with movement a lot of dancers struggle with using their voice and vocalizing so that was definitely beneficial I probably would have preferred to be able to sort of explore the things I wanted to explore in depth rather than sort of I think it's good for any creative person to do something new every now and then but when it's every day for a year and you know it's not something you want to do then that's kind of a bit harder Um, but that being said I mean you know it was just a year and it was beneficial and I probably did develop a lot more comfort with my body except for when I you know, the way sometimes you have tutors in college that are great at what they do, but don't really possess the social skills to communicate things properly with you. So at one point, one of the tutors commented on my body or physical appearance or something, and that kind of knocked me for quite a while. Um, she also called me a loner, which was really nice. Uh, as someone who kind of likes to do their own thing and just sort of go off on their own at lunch, being called a loner by your tutor isn't the best thing. Mm. Um so there was those and and that that was kind of more in in the dance side of things. So, yeah, I don't know. There is there is pros and cons to putting yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, I'll always swear by it for teaching you new things and changing how you think about the world. But uh, I think when you're being forced to do it and graded on it, it's a different kind of scenario, you know. Mm,
1: that's in, yeah, that's an interesting perspective on that.
0: Yeah.
1: Humans like, complicated. Humans. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that was that a four year course
0: Four-year course. Yeah. Um, what,
1: what, what was the overall focus of it? Was it was it all on an artistic level or was there any part of that kind of helping move you toward a career? Do you, do you know what I mean? If you were doing, well, I, mean, I don't know, does that does that count? It? If you went and trained to be a teacher, like at the end of it, you're qualified to be a teacher to go and, you know, get sign a contract and start working.
0: Yeah, Did that exist in
1: that creative world?
0: Um, Yeah, in that course, there was quite a good kind of an academic focus. So we learned kind of about um, funding applications and there was quite an academic component to it as well. Um, And there was a little bit of pedagogy too. So like in vocal theory class and Western Choral, one of our assessments was where you had to actually lead a group and learn how to do that, which was really helpful. Um, I will say, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't a huge focus on kind of career skills from it. At the time, I believe the course has changed and evolved and actually has a different name now as well, which is great. It was primarily creative and a little bit directionless. And that I think a lot of my class probably struggled with. Um, so most people now aren't working in, creative air well they are working in creative areas but not working in kind of singing or dancing which is what the course was about I guess maybe the hope was that it would sort of produce yeah stars musicians dancers kind of thing a lot of people are now teaching or working in various other fields um um, which is valid and great as well I just don't know if it was everyone's intention or goal when they went into the course Mm.
1: Mm. what was your intention and goal
0: I don't know if I had one I didn't think I was ever going to be a touring singer songwriter. Like that, that wasn't a burning desire in me. I wanted to explore music and I wanted to see what direction it could take me. And um, I thought I might be an event manager or a festival coordinator. I loved bringing things together and um, I became the booker for the on-campus bar scholars at a certain point. Um, so I was like a musician in residence there as well as booking acts to come in. So I learned how to set up the sound system and how to EQ and um, how to promote the gigs, all that kind of thing, which was great. Um, so I thought that was maybe what I wanted to do. And then it wasn't until I'd finished my degree that actually gigging and touring became a possibility. So I started going out and looking for gigs. Um, I did like an open mic night in town. and But the course itself didn't really set me up for that, which was, I guess that's the case with most courses. You know, they don't, it's it's kind of who you meet while you're there and the opportunities you go seeking for yourself while you're on the course. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I, I, I rarely go into things with an intention or a goal. I kind of have a history of just falling into stuff and seeing what happens
1: bloating that was the word I was going to use
0: <laughs> one of my friends refers to it as baby ducking so like you know the way baby ducks just follow the next baby duck okay
1: kind of. <laughs> so it's like I'm ducking babies I was like where's this going
0: <laughs> get a basin, get a baby duck the baby in the ba- yeah.
1: yeah who's throwing babies at you that you have to duck <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a fun game
0: <laughs> oh god what an image
1: Uh oh so how long ago is that like between you finished college and now how many what what kind of years are we talking about
0: oh you're making me feel very old now um hello
1: you're (laughs) i don't think you were born when i went to college come on we can do the age thing
0: Uh, when was it i graduated from that course when i was it was uh 2013 i guess i graduated um another couple of years off and went and had a look at what it was i wanted to do did the kind of touring thing released an ep set up the limerick lady which is my kind of it it started as a movement and now it's a podcast so it was originally a movement because i was realizing in 2016 what a horrible disparity there was in gender in the industry so i wanted to kind of platform that
1: in the music industry
0: in the music industry yeah so just looking at like not just in the gigging world but also in radio in in various capacities how you just you weren't seeing women up front doing things um so that's that's kind of where I sort of yeah 2016 I sort of started pursuing various avenues so that was I kind of went down both lines I went like festival booking and curating and and also music at the same time um so 2016 and then it was actually uh one of my events that I ran I booked Niamh Dunn to speak on I booked a panel talk for International Women's Day um, in 2017, I think it was. Neve came and she talked about her experience of touring solo and trying to promote her work and the shows she did that didn't get crowds and all this, like, you know, really vulnerable, open, beautiful stuff. Um, And so after that, we kind of stayed in touch and we talked over and back quite a bit. And then an opportunity came up to tour in Germany. And she got in touch with me about it because she just felt, you know, I was the right fit and she liked my work ethic and she thought I would do well. So uh, I got booked for this tour, uh, the Irish Folk Festival tour that was going to happen in 28, the end of 2017 was going to happen. And um, so I said yes to it. And then the next thing I had to produce an album which I didn't know was going to be a thing. Uh, I didn't have any intention of producing an album, but I went along to sign the contract for this tour and uh, the booker was like, so you'll have an album ready for the tour? I was like, are you you asking? Are you telling me? What's happening here? So uh, yeah, I wound up producing my first album completely by accident because I got booked for this tour in the course of those couple of years where I did the Limerick Lady, released a crowdfunded EP, started running all the Limerick Lady events, was touring the EP and then um began a masters in community music at ul as well and while i was finishing my thesis uh got this german tour and had to release an album so it was a fairly hectic couple of years
1: well, where did the folk music come from
0: that's a really good question
1: this is the first uh, time you've mentioned folk music before this it's uh, you know a whole bunch of stuff and musical theater and dance and acting and and suddenly yeah, and suddenly mean, folk
0: i guess You know, I was sort of exposed to it quite a bit um, just from growing up in Ireland. Um, My mum was really, really into Declan O'Rourke, so I would have listened to him a ton growing up. Um, But it didn't play a huge part in my life until quite late. Like, I sort of just fell in love with and adopted folk a little bit. So I'm not, in the truest sense, a folk musician. Um, I incorporate folk nuance and the folk idiom into the work I create. But I mean, and my voice is what it is. You know, I I don't think I've ever I do I do a bit of everything. I do a bit of musical theater, I do classical singing, I've done Latin American singing, I've done random postmodern weird stuff. But folk, my voice is my voice and it is most often described as folk. I think that's why I fall into the folk bracket most often uh because I don't put on an accent when I sing and um yeah is that like a big part of folk I don't know maybe it
1: is (laughs) I mean I was smiling when you said folk and I'm not a folk musician and I'm a bit of a folk this and I'm like what is
2: yeah
1: you know there's traditional musicians at the folk awards and it's you know that always brings up a little bit of conversation
0: absolutely it does yeah because it is it's a wildly different world and really it should be the trad and folk awards if it's going to be or the trad folk americana awards or that you know (laughs) there's so much to it um i don't know why it isn't just the rt radio one music awards but um yeah it's it's a curious one folk is such a highly contentious genre because you're looking as well at what constitutes folk in different cultures. When I go and travel in America, when I'm, you know, the first time I went over there for Milwaukee Irish Fest in 2019, um, I had a really great time, but I didn't know what I was. And nobody else knew what I was either. And then I was talking to various booking agents and stuff, and the kind of the feedback was, oh, you know, we're not sure what exactly she is. And it's like, oh, she just is what she is. Um so it always causes confusion when trying to book shows in other countries, I think where, you know, if I'm going to Germany or whatever, you know, what does she constitute? And then you have to put it down as just singer-songwriter, but it's like, what is that? You know, Ed Sheeran's a singer-songwriter, you know, am I Ed? And it's it's where you're kind of forced to put yourself in a bit of a box and start writing to spec instead of just writing what you want to write. Um, And it becomes complicated then and you stop being yourself and you start being a genre. And how do you kind of, dance the line between those
1: things is that magnified as a female singer songwriter
0: i think it could be all right yeah because it almost feels like and it's not that there's you know that huge of a dearth of women in the genre it's just in terms of the ones that are visible there's no overt pitting us against each other it's not overt ever from what i can see these days when i was coming up Anytime I played a show, someone would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I saw another girl now playing here the other night and you're way better than her. And it's like, what? Why is that a thing you need to say? What? That's weird. That's a weird thing to say. Would you say it like, what? That's bizarre. Um, and so there was always this kind of like it was bred into you to be jealous and competitive against other women in the industry. And so in folk, then it's like, oh, there's the queen of folk oh, the princess of folk, the darling of folk. And it's like, what that? What I don't really see that in in lads as much where one person is said to be the king of Irish folk or whatever. There's there seems to be this lovely strata of various people that all kind of work together and collaborate. But then among women, it doesn't seem to kind of be marketed the same way, which is odd. Until now, and until now where you're kind of seeing, you know, on the late-late show, you're seeing like six folk women put on one show together and it's like there they are now they're all pals look look at them all there now working together and they're lovely great friends like sisters I'd say (laughs) there but
1: but you make an excellent point which is that when that happens enough times then it's normal and then people don't have to go oh look there were six women on the late late show
0: yeah all plain folk yeah yeah yeah. so it's it's a it's an ongoing conversation and it's an ongoing I know people get exhausted when this conversation comes up. I get exhausted. None of us want to still talk about the gender imbalance. It's not something, we don't have fun talking about it. Like it just, it either makes us angry or tired. Um, But it has to still be talked about because it's still an issue. And, you know, people are still shocked when they see whatever. So I think what was really cool, there was a performance on the Late Late Show there last week of Sinead O'Connor's Mandinka. And you had Faye O'Rourke, Susan O'Neill, Niamh Farrell, Um, I can't remember the other girls' names, but, you know, great lineup of singers. In the background, I'm fairly confident all the musicians were women as well. Now, it wasn't spotlighted as clearly on camera, but it was very cool to see all the musicians were also women. Um, And it's something that isn't kind of promoted as much in the kind of pop contemporary world. You see it a lot more in the kind of folk and trad worlds where there's tons of outstanding women instrumentalists um but to just yeah i don't know it's it is becoming more normal but there's Mm. always going to be some fecker who's like ah jesus more women now singing Jesus, we really need this now
1: (laughs) yeah it is a case of it becoming normal um so how did that german tour go did you enjoy it
0: i did it was a bit of a baptism of fire I'd never spent time on the road before internationally and I'd never spent time among that many other musicians um so it was fascinating and I actually I, during that tour I learned so much um professionally and musically about how you kind of keep the peace on the road for hours at a time and how you connect with other people again I hadn't experienced anything like it before so the bonds you make with people um I also, I was working with, uh, so on the same tour, Socks and the Frying Pan were were there. And so Adon Coyne taught me to play Dadgad tuning on the guitar. And that uh, influenced my second album heavily. So most of the songs I wrote in the weeks following that tour were in open tuning. And I got a really good kind of, a lot of exposure to trad music over the course of those couple of weeks. So um, came away with kind of my, my brain felt a bit broken um and rebuilt which was really cool uh it was broken and then different things were kind of thrown into the mix and then rebuilt with those different things in there so um yeah I was a a different person afterwards in a really positive way I really swear by um destructive rebuilding of people things relationships I think sometimes things have to break down to be rebuilt better so
1: yeah Mm. this mightn't be a a question as much as an observation but you seem to be remarkably accomplished, and remarkably you underst- seem
0: to be, don't I? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Understated, really, is is the point I was trying to make. I mean, you just dropped in there halfway through the conversation. Oh, yeah, I was doing a masters in community music.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I'm, you know, it's part of probably part of the ADHD is that I need to have a million things going on at a time and able to, to be able to do any one thing at a time. Uh, so I've gotten better lately. At focusing on one thing at a time, but for for quite a large tract of my life, it was important to me to have, and it was annoying actually because it meant that I got this reputation as being like the busiest woman in music, and I don't think that's a healthy reputation to have. Like, I don't believe in hustle culture. I don't believe in being busy all the time, but I really prided myself on this kind of good girl behavior of always having something going on and always outwardly thriving and juggling a million things and somehow staying sane, which I wasn't realistically, you know, it was very much a veneer. Um, but yeah, I got this, this reputation as being the busiest woman in folk. Um, and I wasn't, firstly, I wasn't, you know, there were lots of other people doing a million things as well quietly. Um, but because I'm quite a vocal person and talk about everything all the time, people following me were like, Oh my God, you're so busy. Um, So, yeah, I I have wound up being quite, I guess, accomplished and having a lot of stuff under my belt and that. But, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world if you don't. Um, It's it's quite cool when people have one thing that they've really, really focused on and gotten really, really good at. Uh, And I'm always very jealous of those people. It's the people as well who grew up learning an instrument or um, always knew what they wanted to be or do. And that's all they did. That's I just think that's the coolest thing in the
1: world. So you clearly you clearly feel deeply about a lot of things. And I think that comes out in a lot of the advocacy work that you do.
2: Yeah.
1: Is there a burden to that? And I I, I ask that having spoken to others that have become voices for certain movements. and And they talk about how, you know, it is obviously fulfilling and it's important, but it can be exhausting and almost too much at times.
0: Yeah, I've had to be really careful in the past couple of years of what I say yes to. So I can't remember who it was I was listening to who recommended that you choose two causes, three causes a year that you stick to and you support. And it allows you to kind of lose a little bit of the guilt of saying no to things because you made a decision at the start of the year. These are my causes. These are the things that I, you know, I'm really going to give everything to And if I take on too many things, I can't give everything to these three things. So that was a good lesson to learn because I was saying yes to everything for a while. Um, the, The burden comes when someone, someone might come to you asking you to do the smallest, simplest thing. And it's just, can you make a video for this thing? Can you promote this thing? Can you share this thing? And it's not as if it's a massive thing to do. It's not a huge favor to ask of someone but when you have 20 people all asking you to do it is when it becomes difficult because who do you say yes to and who do you say no to and how do you justify saying no when you do say no because there's no actual real reason why you can't do this thing it's just well I mean I'm sorry but you know I'd love to but it's just you know these other 10 people have also asked me to do it and they're like well why don't you do that too then it's like because I also need to eat and go for a walk and have a bit of headspace and I'd like to read a book actually and then I need to write this thing and I've got a commission I have to do and it winds up becoming really heavy because you want to give everything to everyone else especially when you're as lucky as we are to be doing what we do like it's it's a phenomenal career to be in and it's an incredible industry to be in and we're we really are very lucky to have the platform we have and so I've always wanted to give back and to platform others because I I do feel that lucky I feel really privileged um But yeah, it becomes, it becomes very heavy after a point having, it's not, it's not that doing the things is difficult. It's not that doing the things is heavy. It's the constant, uh, asking the constant feeling of eyes on you, like, oh, could you please, could you please, could you please?
1: And it's like, oh,
0: I really want to. (laughs) Would
1: you be okay if you didn't have a cause? Would you be okay if you didn't have a cause?
0: I don't think so. Um. I mean, obviously, you know, I'd I'd love for everything in the world to be great. If everything in the world was great and everything was working and everyone was happy and fed and had homes, I'd be delighted. Um, it's not that I needed to, to survive myself. I don't think I'd be myself if I didn't care about the stuff that's going on out there. Um, now I do, you know, God, there's been some nights now I do get a bit kind of, overwrought with it sometimes where there'll be a night out when I'll see some lad who's experiencing homelessness and I've had a few too many drinks and I just get completely overwhelmed by how much I can't help every single person in the world and I wind up bawling and being bundled into a taxi because I'm like no I just want to give them all of my money and like can we just we don't get the taxi we just give them the taxi and then I give them all the money for somewhere to sleep and you know people are like Emma if you do this every single night you're going to have no money and yeah it's one of those kind of things it does become one of those things or it did for a while I've learned to sort of temper it a bit but I don't know you wind up If you temper it, there's the fear that you get kind of numb to stuff as well. And I'd hate that. I'd like to be as open as possible. It just, it all becomes a bit overwhelming, you know?
1: I think my favorite phrase that I learned from uh, Anthony de Mello, he was a Jesuit priest and a real rebel. He was thrown out of the Jesuits and excommunicated and all sorts. You know, he was way ahead of his time. What
0: does it take to be excommunicated from the
1: Jesuits? I think he he talked about all sorts of stuff. He was fantastic and had a wonderful sense of humor. I'm pretty sure he talked about... Adv- advocacy and being angry about things. And, and somebody asked him about it in, in a talk. It's one of the only talks I think where there was there was some really grainy video and he said, he I can't remember who he quoted, but he said, jump into the din of battle, but leave your heart at the lotus feet of the Lord, which was fantastic. And it was the idea of like, take action by jump in. Yeah, but don't get don't let your emotions get the better of you, or to get so emotionally involved. And it was somebody who who talked, who had asked him a question about, you know, do you not get really angry and upset when you see a homeless person? And his, of course, his thing was, well, yes, and and if I did, what would that do to them? They're, they're still homeless and hungry, Absolutely, and I'm and yeah. I'm angry. You know, I just yeah. thought that I that was a very helpful phrase for me.
0: Yeah, it's that thing of not making it about you, I suppose, not centering yourself in these things. And like you know, after you've had a few drinks ego starts to win quite a bit but yeah with any of these things if if you allow yourself to get overwrought with emotion and, and stuff uh in front of someone all it does is make your emotions their problem all of a sudden they have to comfort you this person who's living on the streets in the cold has nothing to eat suddenly that somehow a you problem. That's ridiculous. So yeah, it is important. I mean, I, you know, I get emotional and stuff in, in the quiet of my own space. <laughs> I wouldn't do it in front of someone who's genuinely struggling. Um, but that's, that is a really good, yeah. I mean, anger has a purpose. I think anger is a very, very valuable and, uh, powerful emotion to experience if it is motivating and if it is something that moves you to, to act. Um, but outside of that, you know any strong emotions like that don't don't actually serve the the thing that you're angry or emotional about and so you have to you do have to kind of be careful with that again it's about moderation you know if you're tempering yourself all the time then are you ever feeling anything and as an artist how helpful is that but yeah it's about finding balance Mm.
1: you've spoken a lot about anxiety in your own personal journey with anxiety is there a question at the end of that end how are you doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> How are you now? Have you cried lately?
1: <laughs> Did you get your cold swimming? <laughs> <laughs> right, <tubber>, you? <laughs> is um is that an ongoing uh, is it an ongoing journey? I think that's the question.
0: Um I struggle with it from time to time, but I've I've learned to uh, I think pinpoint it a bit better. Um I've learned now that actually what I kind of had put down to anxiety is actually part of the autistic experience. So overwhelm and not recognizing social cues, uh, sensory overload, um, struggling with mess, struggling with disorder, all this kind of stuff, uh, changes in schedule and routine, sudden changes of plan with people, all of that stuff, things that I would have previously thought was an anxiety attack or an experience of anxiety, I think is actually just um part of my the way I'm wired um as an autistic person so learning to to kind of frame it as that has helped a lot because I can kind of It's not that I can rationalize it or change how I feel about it but it means um what I'm experiencing this kind of psychosomatic experience has logic to it and there is something in what just happened that has triggered this response in me and I can kind of step back from it a bit more now um I've also learned to make accommodations for myself a lot more so in 2019 when I went to Milwaukee I really struggled with anxiety to the point that when I went and did the rock show at the end of the festival that for anyone listening who hasn't been you have to go but secondly um, the rock show is this massive gathering of musicians on stage uh, all singing songs and kind of paying tribute to an artist or a genre or something so 2019 I was on stage with you guys and with Hermitage Green and we did cranberries medley and I had never been in front of a crowd that size before my in-ear monitors weren't working um I didn't fully understand what the structure of the song was going to be um I had had a long day I was wearing a dress that was sense like the sensory experience of the dress I was in the shoes I was in was just completely off and I felt totally uncomfortable in my own skin and I just broke I just shut down entirely I came off stage and geez, the poor lads from Hermitage Green, they were trying to pay me a compliment and be nice to me. I'm pretty sure I snapped at them and just walked away. Like I felt like an absolute prick. Like I just, but I'm looking back now and I recognize what actually happened and what the combination of things were that put me into that position. And uh, also I had been there for the full festival on my own and I didn't really know anyone. I didn't understand how to communicate with people. I didn't understand what the social dynamics were. Um, or how anything worked so this year or last year rather going back to Milwaukee I understood the lay of the land and how the hotel worked and how the festival worked and who you needed to talk to and how rehearsals happened and all that kind of thing and I was much more comfortable in my own skin and I think that probably was pretty obvious but you know when I talk about 2019 I always talk about how I was experiencing low-level anxiety all weekend and now I know I was just in total sensory overload complete overwhelm and I wasn't making accommodations for myself this year I brought Alec over with me on cello he was with me the whole time he's someone who thinks very like I do he understands when I need space and when I need company and the two of us really helped each other out and I was able to make that little accommodation for myself and I budgeted for that and it was a total game changer so I think getting that identification as autistic really helped me to to know what I needed to do for myself to be able to survive in this industry if I had kept going the way I was going without an identification I'd have wound up on anti-anxiety medication that wouldn't have worked and I'd have given up so yeah it's um some you know and and to a degree it is an anxiety experience it's very similar but I tried therapy for it and My counsellor told me to try and just be in the moment, which as a neurodivergent person is the worst possible thing you can tell someone. Uh, So learning that was really
1: helpful. That was a remarkable answer. And that whole last piece, if I can say so, having a deep and very personal connection to what you're talking about, uh, I know that people that would really, really benefit from everything that you said in that last four or five minutes. It's a wonderful explanation of how it all works. Yeah. Yeah. First time I did Milwaukee, it was 2012. And on the Sunday night after it was all over at one o'clock in the morning, I'm in the fetal position on the floor of the hotel on the phone to my wife. And I couldn't stop shaking because I had yeah. burnt as you described I had burned through every ounce of anything that I could possibly reserve for myself yeah and and not knowing you know that you only have 100 pennies to spend every day and you got to keep some for yourself
0: oh this is it absolutely Yeah, 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 yeah yeah I love the use of pennies or the use of spoons there's different things you can use to describe the amount you have to give to people on a given day or to give to activities and it's something that I think people look at musicians and people who perform and assume we have boundless pennies we have we just keep on spending all day long all night long it's all fine Mm -hmm. and I remember playing a festival in Ireland a few years ago and kind of saying you know it's really noisy and there's a lot of people and I really need I'm really struggling and another musician saying you're in the wrong industry and kind of feeling like it was both quite a, a hurtful moment but also a really helpful moment because I was at a point where I was able to kind of go no I'm not and we need to stop assuming that all of us as creatives, as performers, as musicians are all fine all the time and can deal with all of this all the time. There's It takes all kinds to make this industry work and to be in this kind of career. And actually, you know, originally artists were the shy, retiring, like people that couldn't cope socially. We We weren't necessarily as reflective, introspective people designed for all the rest of the stuff and all the socializing and the mingling and all of that. So there's, you know, there's room for everyone in this industry. And it really bothers me, this idea that we should all be able to come off stage and go straight into the crowd and talk to everyone and mingle and network and make the connections and then get up and do it again the next day when, God, the amount of times I've had what I now know are autistic hangovers, basically, where you've had like three days of that nonstop and nobody around you is willing to give you the space or time to be on your own. And then you just go and sit on your own for a week because you're totally burnt out. It's that exact thing. Yeah. You're like, you have to be on the ground and you have to talk to someone who is grounding and it's, it's good to know what your accommodations need to be. Um, It's horrible to have to learn it the hard way like that.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. What's next for Emma Langford?
0: Funnily enough, I'm going to America. (laughs) (laughs) I'm heading to Folk Alliance uh, at the end of this month for a week. Folk Alliance in Kansas City so I'll be straight into the you know the madness for a full week but I have uh I have my band with me so I've got my keys player I've got Alec and I've got a drummer over there who's going to work with us um so that that'll be fun it's the for for folks listening it's one of the biggest industry events in the world and a really great chance to showcase what you do to bookers promoters all that kind of stuff so hopefully I'll meet some cool people there and uh and then I've got just a handful of Irish gigs. I'm kind of keeping it quiet this year in Ireland. That's the plan anyway. A couple of gigs and a couple of festivals. And then Germany for three weeks, April, May, and maybe back to America in winter time. I've got a couple of inquiries for kind of October, November time for this year. So that's the intention. And sure, look, if I get anything else, it'll all be on my website, I guess. I'm that really was my next question. Back. Where can pe- Where can people find you? Everywhere. I am omnipresent and I am inevitable. Um <laughs> I'm on most social media platforms. I think I'm on all of them. I think. I don't know if there's one I'm not on. So if you look for Emma Langford Music, most places you'll find me. And then my website's emmalangfordmusic.com and that has kind of my news, my press, my pictures, my music gigs, all that kind of thing. So it's the handiest place to go for everything.
1: Have you figured out how to use TikTok yet?
0: I'm on it. I have... I think six videos up they're really bad and have (laughs) nearly like no views on them whatsoever. I have discovered my niche though. So um, I do a mean trumpet impression and I've discovered there's this guy called Sheridan who does videos where you have to duet with him. He plays piano and does like little harmonies and stuff. So I'm going finding the people that have duetted with him and then I'm layering a trumpet solo on top of that. Um, And it's really fun. So (laughs) I think that might be my niche.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Emma, thank you. This has been a beautiful conversation.
0: Thank you so much. Likewise.